This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to this evening's edition of Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Tonight I have a brilliant, brilliant co-host joining me. It's Grace Blakely. Grace, how are we? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. We, we did a great interview uh, last week. It went out on Sunday on Downstream. Um, if people want to watch yeah. that, of course, they're very welcome to. The comments were effusive. They were gushing about you. And I, I was think- so shocked. I was really expecting, like, every time I go on YouTube or, like, on anything and, like, actually see the comments, I just kind of glanced over them. And I was like, oh, my God, people really like this. It was really encouraging. Yeah. So definitely well, watch it if you haven't already. I think on finance and uh, economics, you make what should be quite simple things, but are often explained in very complex ways, as simple as they're meant to be. I think that's a rare gift. Coming up on tonight's show, we'll be talking about rising wages and the triple lock on pensions. The Metropolitan Police are being sued by Graham Smith following the sham of protest arrests at the coronation. And the GB News funder who is eyeing up a potential bid to buy the Telegraph. Stay tuned for all of that. First story. Deputy Leader Angela Rayner has used her speech at the TUC conference in Liverpool to make bold commitments on employment rights. Let's take a look. Congress, I come here with one message today, that the next Labour government will build an economy that works for working people, with a new deal for working people. Labour will start by bringing forward an employment rights bill to legislate for this within the first 100 days of entering office. That's a cast iron commitment. Later, Rayner went into some of the detail of what that bill would contain. Day one basic rights, a ban on zero hour contracts, an end to fire and rehire. Family-friendly working, strengthened sick pay, making it available to all workers, including the lowest earners, and from day one, we'll go faster and quicker to end the gender pay gap, address unequal pay, tackle sexual harassment at work, and put mental health on a par with physical health. And we'll bring in a proper living wage that people can actually live on. Now, Rayner was careful to pitch Labour's New Deal for working people as both about improving workers' conditions as well as being about economic growth. Grace, quickly, because I want to get a lot from you on this topic. What's your response to those two clips we just saw? I think it is encouraging. And there's no point kind of pretending that some of those announcements amount to nothing because they don't. You know, this is, I think, the one area um, that I've consistently said probably matters most significantly. Um, when we're thinking about economic justice and when we're thinking about inequality is like repealing anti-trade union legislation and supporting the trade union movement. So this is not nothing. And I think it's important that we recognise that. And obviously, it's a clever strategy from um, the Labour leadership to, you know, actually announce some things which, relatively speaking, are not going to, you know, be particularly like a massive threat to uh, to the interests of um, of capital, but which still do amount to uh, some sort of check on the massive erosion that we've seen in workers' bargaining power and in trade union rights and workers' rights over the last several decades, um, whilst still obviously not going far enough. Um, and um, in a wider economic context in which we know that workers' bargaining power is already quite tightly constrained. Um, so, you know, it's something, but it's definitely not enough. A major theme at the TUC Congress has been the Tories Minimum Service Act. Under the Act, employers can set minimum service levels in areas like health, education and transport. What that means is that it compels workers to stay on the job or risk being sacked. Here's what Raina said about that in her speech. For far too long, unions have had barriers put in their way to do your work, damaging industrial relations and worsening disputes. The Tories pushed through the 2016 Trade Union Act, preventing fair bargaining and holding back living standards. And this year, this year, they gave us the minimum service levels bill, a spiteful and bitter attack that threatens nurses with the sack. We know that going on strike is always the last resort, but it's a fundamental freedom that must be respected. 
So let me tell you loud and clear, Congress, the next Labour government will ask Parliament to repeal these anti-trade union laws within the first 100 days. Did you hear that? Do you know what that is? Finally, a promise from Labour to actually repeal some draconian Tory legislation. Although promises from this leadership are now pretty hard to believe given how many have been broken. The Minimum Services Act was a hot topic at the TUC with union leaders understandably coming out in force to condemn it and encourage resistance. RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch told the Congress this. Labour Party is committed to, to repealing this in the first 100 days. That doesn't mean it's going to be gone by the end of next year. We could be well into 2025 before we see this uh, legislation off the statute book. And if we seek to comply with that, where are our disputes going to go? Where will our action be? The mandate the RMT has now with the talks could be covered by this legislation if the Tories get their acts together. And the notion that we will be issued with a work notice and we will identify our members and tell them to go to work and we will, we will tell our rank and file picket supervisors to instruct their workmates to go past their own picket line is a nonsense. We will not be complying with that. We will not accept it and we just won't do it. And that has got to be the message from this Congress. Our stance is non-compliance. That's what it says and that's what we've got to deliver. Non-cooperation and non-compliance. We need a special Congress, which is in this uh, motion. It needs to be called as quickly as we know the details of what they're going to bring in. And we have to work out exactly what we're going to do to not comply as this resolution and motion says. So let's not accept this meekly. Meek compliance with this legislation is the road to oblivion for this movement. Nobody remembers those that comply with oppression. People remember the Tollpuddle Martyrs. People remember the Chartists. People remember 1926 and the miners' strike. Not because they gave in, it's because they fought back. That's what we have to do. That's the message. We are a fighting workers' movement and we're going to turn this legislation over and defeat it at the workplace and on the streets. That message of resistance to the Act was one picked up by other union leaders too. General Secretary of the National Education Union, Daniel Cabede, came out against the law, proposing to fight any sackings with even more direct action. He told the Congress this. Should any one of the NEU's members get sacked the next time we inevitably take a national strike action, we will close that school until they are reinstated, and that is how we will fight this bill. Opposition to the Act resulted in the Congress unanimously passing a motion to adopt a stance of non-compliance with the law. Extraordinary, frankly. Another piece of Tory legislation that Rayner promised to repeal in that clip is the 2016 Trade Union Act. That's the David Cameron-era law that makes it much harder for unions to call a strike by setting much higher thresholds for turnout. It's a huge promise to the unions, but other messaging from Labour has a slightly different angle. Speaking to Sky, a Labour insider said this. We want to return to a new Labour settlement on trade union laws. This is about a new working partnership with the unions. The new Labour settlement, which had near zero strikes, is our aim. A new Labour settlement is a reference to Tony Blair's shift away from collective bargaining towards social partnerships that encouraged cooperative bargaining between unions and employers. In other words, a more business-friendly way of managing union demands. After a year of massive industrial action across the country, it's not likely the unions will be inspired by that kind of vision, however. What's more, it really is from another time when inflation was low and we enjoyed Goldilocks conditions for the global economy. The late 90s and early noughties were much kinder to Britain than the last 15 years. So what was the government's response to Rayner's speech? Tory party chairman and cabinet minister Greg Hans said this, Labour's mask slips, reversing anti-strike laws will mean more strikes, damaging the economy and disrupting the lives of hard-working people. Only the Conservatives are delivering the protections we need to stop Labour-backed union leaders from trying to shut down the country. That might make a modicum of sense if the Tories hadn't increased anti-union laws in 2016, and yet we saw more strikes several years thereafter. Not very smart, is it, Greg? And that's because people, particularly over the last 18 months, 
don't like getting poorer. And when they're faced with that, they take action. A hard concept for MPs who see their wages rise rather comfortably every year, I'm sure. Uh, back to Angela Rayner, who made a number of other promises too. She pledged to allow gig economy and adult social care workers to collectively negotiate fairer pay deals and to allow unions to utilize electronic voting. A 2017 independent review uh, ruled that electronic balloting was both safe and secure to use during strike ballots. But the Tories, who used electronic balloting for their own leadership elections last year, have ignored that ruling for six years. Some union bosses seem to be pretty pleased with Angela Rayner's commitments. Paul Novak of the TUC said that implementing Labour's New Deal would be, quote, the biggest upgrade in workers' rights in a generation. And meanwhile, Unison's uh, Christine Makinia said, quote, Labour in government would dramatically improve the lives of working people and their families. Not everyone was on the same wavelength, however, uh, with Unite Sharon Graham saying this. The country clearly would be better off with a Labour government, there is no doubt. That said, as the General Secretary of Unite, my job is to fight for workers and ensure Labour commits to making the lives of working people better. As with all things, the devil will be in the detail and the words on the page. There can be no backtracking on the agreed workers' rights. Britain is hurting and Labour needs to be bold. Grace, what, what, what did you make of the, the, the speech and the reaction to it? I mean, it's always interesting, isn't it, that Mick Lynch is, is sort of painted by the media as this, this gruff polemicist on the streets, in the media, but actually he's been far more conciliatory and friendly towards Labour than I think some people would have you suspect from the way they try and portray him. Given Mick Lynch's response, do you think that universally that the unions are on board with this? Or do you think there's still more hostility than they're letting on? Sharon Graham's take kind of really um, summarises the attitude that most union bosses will probably be taking to, taking to this, aside from those who are very close to the current Labour leadership, which is that their role is to protect the interests of their members. And that potentially, in fact, it's likely that when, if, when Labour got into power and implemented um, these policies, that would make that slightly easier. But it obviously wouldn't do the job in, in its entirety. Um, it wouldn't, you know, allow for um, a, a swift end, as Mick Lynch said, to some of the ongoing um, strike action that is either underway or is being considered. There are so many disputes that are either currently underway or in the works. Um, and the Conservative attitude towards that has been very much to say, we cannot allow a breakdown of, of order. Um, we cannot allow these workers and these unionists to basically kind of threaten, um, you know, the, the order that we are trying to establish for society. Um, and I think that is uh, potentially an opportunity for the Labour Party, right? Because um, whilst these measures, you know, would kind of improve things somewhat, um, they allow the, the Labour Party to kind of present itself as the party of the maintenance of order. This is kind of what happened in like the 1960s and 70s a lot of the time when you had um, kind of a, a kind of social incomes policy that was often implemented by a Labour government where basically that you had this corporatist world where um, governments would kind of intervene very overtly between workers and bosses when it came to strike action and would say, you know, um, Labour would often say we are the party that is closest to the unions and so we will be better able to encourage workers to take voluntary pay restraints um, or to discourage them from striking. Whereas the Conservatives would say we're the party of law and order. If people strike, we will crush them. And it kind of, you know, during most elections, especially during the 70s when this was a big problem, it swung from one pole to the other. People would think, right, well, we've got Labour, so they'll work with the unions. Oh, that didn't work. OK, we'll go with Tories um, who will kind of try and crush the unions. And I think basically Labour's trying to go back to that strategy of saying, well, the Conservatives are being, you know, too intransigent. They're not going to be able to deal with this problem the fact that workers are striking um, and our approach, which is to be more conciliatory, which is to provide some carrot, but also a, a bit, if not a lot of stick, depending on um, which action uh, is, is being considered, uh, is going to be better for the country in the long term. And again, better for the country in the long term, meaning um, this will be a more effective way of kind of guaranteeing law and order, basically, rather than actually there being on the side of workers. It's a way of basically presenting themselves as the kind of responsible guarantors of economic growth. 
That's such interesting uh, commentary there. I think I agree with it. I love the uh, historical analysis too. But quickly, Grace, you know, Angela Rayner used the word comrades there. The optics of that are not always positive for Labour. Do you think there is potentially something of a tension between Rayner, other people around Starmer, which could be quite constructive for the unions in so much as they're not necessarily all singing from the same song sheet here. You know, there may be people close to Starmer who don't really prioritize this stuff in the same way. And, and of course, there is the political expediency angle you just talked about, which is necessary for, for, for Starmer to win a big majority. He needs to be both the party of the unions and of business. Mm. But there is also something potentially very positive for the unions under a Labour government that they could shift the debate and policy further left towards work. I mean, that, that seems plausible, at least, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I think there definitely would be an opportunity there. And, you know, Sharon Graham is no fan of Keir Starmer. And she was still very clear to open that statement by saying the country would be better off under a Labour government. And I think that is broadly true. You know, it's hard to imagine how the country could be worse off under a worse Conservative government, although I'm sure Rishi Sunak would probably manage that given another term. And Labour undoubtedly would put in place some measures, particularly these, that would both kind of potentially reduce the hardship that's being faced by um, working people up and down the country, but also even arguably more importantly in terms of the long-term um, impact that will have on inequality, support workers' rights. So there is definitely a strategic angle there. And as I said at the beginning, you know, it's the job of these trade union leaders really not to um, be overtly party political. It's their job to be strategic with the view to winning as many disputes as they possibly can. Um, so it makes sense to, for them to kind of have this, as you say, the, this kind of orientation towards the Labour Party of, um, you know, cool-ish support. And again, this obviously varies from union to union because some of them are very close to the the Starmer, um, the Starmer leadership. But basically kind of welcoming these changes and saying, yes, this will be good. This will help us to fight the battles that we're going to fight, whilst also making very clear that they will still be fighting battles. And that will be something that will be very difficult for Keir Starmer in particular to hear. You know, if we do see this um, separation of uh, responsibilities where, let's say, Angela Rayner um, puts herself up as the person who's closest to the unions, uh, Starmer's kind of chief, like, negotiator, the kind of, you know, the person that can the, be like the working class voice, basically, and say, I'm familiar with uh, the way that these processes work. I know all of these people. I can go out onto, you know, TV and present these arguments um, in a way that will be, you know, perhaps more palatable to a lot of people who would vote Labour. Um, but ultimately, if we still end up in a situation where there are still strikes, um, you know, across a range of sectors, but particularly in the public sector, that is not something that Keir Starmer is going to look kindly upon. Again, because he is running based on this idea of Labour is the best guarantor of prosperity and law and order. He's not saying we want to revolutionise the system. He's not saying we want to kind of, you know, massively reduce inequality and uh, change the balance of power between Labour labor and capital and, you know, have a, a new deal for the environment or any of those things. He's just saying things are pretty bad now. And under Labour, they'll be a bit better, both in terms of the money that you've got in your pocket and also in terms of these more general concerns around, you know, order. Um, so whether that's around like protecting our borders or preventing unions from taking strike action. So if the unions do continue to adopt this strategic position where they're saying, give us what we want, but also that's not going to be enough. And if we need to carry on going strike, we will carry on going on strike. Then you'll see, I think, a, a, a bigger rift develop. Sticking on the economy, uh, this is a really important story. We've been waiting for this for such a long time because wages are rising at this time for real because they're now rising more than inflation. The Office for National Statistics has said average pay, excluding bonuses, has increased by 7.8% in the past year with total pay growing by 8.5% when you account for one-off payments to NHS workers and civil servants to end various disputes with pay deals and whatnot. That's obviously great news for the working and middle class. Newsflash, you aren't getting poorer. Surely everyone is happy. Well, not quite, because for the Bank of England, rising wages is viewed as likely to keep inflation higher than it should be, which in turn means more interest rate rises. Sarah Breeden is the Bank of England's incoming Deputy Governor for Financial Stability, and she told the House of Commons Treasury Select Committee this. The challenge right now is that wages are high and are rising, and there is a real risk that the second round effects mean that this inflation becomes embedded. Translation. 
you aren't getting poorer quickly enough and you need to get poorer more quickly to reduce inflation. You first would be my response. Of course, high inflation is bad, but it is falling fairly quickly. And the fact that wage growth has overtaken it should be welcome. After all, ideally, wouldn't we want to be a low inflation, high wage economy? The Financial Times reports what this all means for interest rate rises more broadly. Investors expect the BOE to increase rates by 0.25% percentage points next week to 5.5%, with a market-implied probability of close to 80%. But traders are evenly split on the chances of one further rate increase later in the year. Samuel Toombs, economist at the consultancy Pantheon Macroeconomics, said the UK's persistently high wage growth probably meant the BOE probably can't stop raising the bank rate at next week's meeting. That's the 5.5%. But the end of the tightening cycle is not far off now. In other words, uh, interest rate rises will stop at some point. So the news on healthy wage growth means rates will probably rise. That seems to be the consensus. Grace, we'll talk about the triple lock next. But just quickly on this, do you think rates will stay at around 5.5% or will they go higher before the end of the year? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. Um, firstly, that uh, that quote that you had um, from the head of uh, the incoming financial stability um, chair, I think it was, where she talked about the second order effects becoming embedded of uh, of, um, of rising incomes. What that means is that um, the Bank of England is looking not only at whether or not wages are rising in line with inflation now, they're looking at whether or not workers have enough bargaining power to make sure that any future increases in prices will be accounted for in terms of rising wages. So basically, do workers have the power to make sure that their wages are increasing in line with inflation? Um, now, broadly speaking, they don't in the sense that we are you know, living at a, a time when bargaining power is at really kind of you know, lows. Perhaps, you know, since the 1970s, really, when it was much higher, we've seen a, a, a secular decline in workers' bargaining power, although it's starting to increase somewhat again. And, you know, the industrial action that we're seeing reflects that. But generally speaking, in terms of legislation, in terms of workers' rights, in terms of the wider economic situation, workers don't have very much bargaining power. So the idea that, you know, workers are going to suddenly just be able to make sure, make all of these demands to make sure that their wages do suddenly start increasing in line with inflation, bearing in mind that they haven't been the last year at least, um, is is kind of absurd. But again, speaks to this kind of fairy tale world that most Bank of England economists are living in. The important point, I think, to account for here is that there is obviously some difference um, where, depending on where you're looking at in the income spectrum. So well-paid professional workers actually do have a lot of bargaining power. So, um, you know, salaried professionals, people with relatively high incomes already are in a relatively good position to say, we want our wages to go up in line with inflation. Um, and you see that reflected in the pay statistics. It's actually uh, workers in um, kind of, you know, uh, lower paid jobs or kind of middle uh, middle income and, and low income workers who struggle to make sure that that um, wage growth kind of continues. Um, so, yeah, that disparity is also important to, to account for when we're thinking about whether or not inflation becomes embedded. We also have to go back and look at the things that were driving inflation in the first place. And those things have undoubtedly um, kind of eased. Those, those broader inflationary pressures have definitely eased. So those were, you know, firstly, um, the uh, kind of uneven recovery from the global pandemic, which gave us uh, the chaos that we had in global shipping that sent shipping costs really high. And that had a, an impact, you know, a year or two down the line in terms of costs on the shelves the disruption to um, supply chains, massive shortages in particular sectors that had huge ramifications in others, things like, you know, chip shortages um, and, you know, and the car market and all of these sorts of things. And um, you also had obviously the war in Ukraine, which continues to be a factor, but um, you are seeing countries kind of adapting to those shortages that are um, implied by ongoing sanctions against Russia. Um, and then you had energy costs, which obviously were a massive factor pushing up, um, pushing up prices. And again, those are kind of, you know, rising and still high, but not in the same way that that we saw kind of, you know, two years ago. Um, so those like external pressures are starting to ease off somewhat. Uh, the questions now are basically how other economic actors respond to those things. We've talked about workers already. And again, it, it is a question of power. So more powerful, better paid workers are going to be able to demand wages wage increases in line with inflation, whereas less well-off workers aren't. So that's a recipe for rising inequality. The second factor, and this should be quite pertinent, we heard from um, the chair of the Financial Stability 
arm of the Bank of England is whether or not mortgage holders are going to start defaulting because they can't afford to um, keep up with their repayments. We've actually seen, I saw an article today suggesting that um, defaults on mortgages or um, rather arrears in mortgages, so people who haven't been able to pay their, their mortgages for you know a month or a few months, are starting to increase quite significantly. So that's potentially a really big problem. It implies that people have already have a lot of debt and potentially not the income to be able to repay that debt. And if interest rates keep rising, that's going to be a really big problem over the long term, especially if incomes don't keep up. Um, it's also uh, important to bear in mind what other countries are doing. Um, so interest rates aren't set in isolation. Um, they also have an impact on exchange rates and on trade. As long as America keeps interest rates high, which you know the Fed's been very aggressive in terms of raising interest rates, um, that will have an impact on us because the pound is it's actually like um, the pound is at the moment not doing particularly well relative to the dollar. And that means that importing things is more expensive. And we are a nation that relies very, very heavily on imports. Um, so as long as uh, our currency isn't particularly you know, strong and that we continue to rely on imports, which we do, that's going to actually keep inflationary pressures relatively high. Um, but there are also all of these other questions around demand and how businesses are going to respond. Now, the thing that could lead to inflation easing off is if we went into a recession. Um, and that is, I think, still the big unknown factor. Lots of people are saying, oh, it's going to be fine. All the signs suggest that we're not going to have a recession. Everything's going to be OK. But if all of those other factors don't align, you know, if incomes do continue to fall, if businesses uh, do continue to hold off on investing, if we start to see signs of strain in the financial system, um, then that's potentially going to suggest that you know, we could end up in a recession at some point over the next year or two. And then that would bring inflation down, but at a massive cost. You got it first there, guys. That was Blakely Analytica 2023 Global Macro Report. I should say as well that um, this stuff really isn't being talked about enough with regards to the need for a recession. Uh, either you get poorer and wages fall below inflation for a sustained period of time, or we have to have economic contraction. Very well explained there, Grace. Of course, all of this has implications for pensions in Britain because of something called the triple lock. The triple lot was introduced in 2010 by the coalition government, and it means state pensions increase on a yearly basis, either by inflation, average pay rises, or 2.5%, whichever is highest. It's rather generous in that respect. So with wages growing by 8.5%, that is the rate at which the state pension will now increase for this year, meaning an annual increase of nearly £700 on the basic state pension. That takes it to around £8,800 for the year. Now, that comes after an increase of 10.1% last year when pensions rose by the rate of inflation, which was, of course, considerably higher than it is now. The objective of the triple lock is to ensure pensioners don't get poorer, of course, a very noble aim. And according to the charity Independent Age, 20% of single pensioners and 13% of all pensioners rely solely on the state pension and benefits. And of course, £8,800 a year is hardly a king's ransom. Nobody thinks that. But there are serious questions over the long-term viability of the triple lock. After all, it only cost £450 million a year when it was introduced in 2010, with low inflation and low wage growth viewed as semi-permanent. But now, it costs the government several billion pounds a year, and this is remarkable. According to the Office for Budget Responsibility, it could cost hundreds of billions a year in the future. I don't think this is a sensible way to ensure pensioners are treated fairly. And I think the whole of the rest of the labor market suffers as a result. Now, given the rising costs of public pensions, you suspect the triple lock would be a political hot potato ahead of the next election. So this response from Angela Rayner on whether Labour would keep the triple lock in power was a touch surprising. In 2019, in the, in the manifesto, Labour also promised to keep the triple lock. Well, since 2019, the government have crashed the economy and we're in a very different place. What Labour has said is that we'll look at that in the run-up to a general election, but we will not make unfunded spending commitments because Liz Truss did that and she crashed the economy. She made unfunded tax cuts and it crashed our economy and working people paid the price of that. The Labour Party will secure our economy, grow the economy and have a real industrial strategy that means that people can get on in life and their businesses that want to invest in the UK can have the confidence to do so. So just to get this clear for me, are you not committed 
to keeping the triple lock on pensions? We will have to see where we are when we get to a general election and we see the finances. We will not make unfunding spending commitments. Very, very interesting. Uh, you would have thought Labour trying to sort of lock up the boomer vote would actually stick to the triple lock. So in a way, that's actually a brave thing to say. Often when Labour say, we can't afford to do this, we don't know, we have to get close to the election, it's unfunded, blah, blah, blah. They're talking about, okay, the two-child uh, benefit cap. Or they're talking about, okay, well, how, how will you substantially improve childcare? We'll improve it. How? How's it going to be funded? We don't know. Here, however, it's on quite a contentious issue. And I should say, it also means there's clear water between them and the Conservative Party, because Rishi Sunak is very clear the Tories are going to keep the triple lock. Grace, what's your read on this? Because, like I say, it's politically quite a brave thing to do, to say this, um, even though that, that sort of, that rhetoric often means caution when it's coming from Labour. My personal view is that, you know, the, the pensions in this country should probably rise in line with inflation. If you're looking at eliminating pensioner poverty, maybe you, you'd say inflation plus something. But this system that we have, which is inflation or wages or 2.5%, whatever is higher, it just seems a completely mad, Byzantine, you know, overly complicated way of doing things. I think Cameron did it because fundamentally it was born of, of electoral considerations rather than common sense. What's your take on it? I think the pension system in this country is absolutely screwed. And this is something that you know and, and will know doing your research into demographic ageing, is that we have this time bomb, basically, of um, social security contributions, particularly pensions. The pension system was designed literally in the aftermath of the Second World War, we had a tiny elderly population and it was designed so that people were told you save up money over the course of your life through national insurance and then you derive that, you, you, you know, draw that down as your pension. It's not true. It's paid for, obviously, out of current taxes. Um, so it was easy when you had a big working population and a small elderly population. We don't have that anymore. We have um, a, a, a large and rising elderly population um, that expect, and especially kind of uh, that boomer generation um, and Gen Xers, some Gen Xers, expect often very large pensions, some of which are quite unsustainable. Having said that, the um, state pension, which is what we're talking about here, the state pension that we have in the UK is one of the lowest in the world. Um, it is barely enough to live on. And that creates, um, it creates problems and distortions when we're thinking about inequality among older age groups. It creates problems and distortions when it comes to questions around kind of social care and also to the financial system more generally, because there is this um, the desperation among many people, particularly in their kind of 30s, 40s and 50s, to save up as much money as possible and invest that money in financial markets to make sure that they have enough money to retire. Um, and what we are increasingly finding is that it's actually quite hard for everyone in a system to be, be able to invest the amount of money that they would need in, you know, markets that would have to be immune from crisis, that would have to have, you know, the increasing profitability, especially at a time when, you know, there's all these questions around the future of economic growth and productivity. There are really big challenges there. So I actually think it's really important that we maintain state pensions um, and arguably increase them. Whether or not the triple lock is a good way of doing that is another question. And as you say, I think, you know, it's all politics here. Like the Tories know they need older people to vote for them. They need to look like they care about older people because they're you know, disproportionately they um, rely on those votes. Whereas the Labour Party, I think, now probably takes for granted that it's going to be younger people who are going to vote for them. Um, I think the big question here is that this is going to be an issue in some of those uh, seats in the north. Um, because that's where there will be a lot of older and less well-off people who many of whom will rely on the state pension. Um, and if Labour says, oh, actually, this isn't something that's important to us, that could potentially um, lead them to not gain back some of those seats that they got in, uh, that they lost in the kind of red wall um, last uh, in, in 2019. And that is obviously uh, something that Keir Starmer is targeting with his, his rhetoric around law and order. So potentially not politically that savvy. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, just to clarify my position on this, pension poverty is a very big deal. And clearly, £8,800 isn't very much. And I'll be saying that. I'm certainly not saying that. I just think this particular mechanism isn't particularly progressive. You know, it was brought about, after all, by David Cameron in 2010. Uh, I would, I would favour something like index to inflation plus 1.5% or something. Because I think it's a huge area of expense. And if you look at, for instance, pensioners who are renters, they are so screwed. Pensioners who've paid off their mortgage are an entirely different situation. 
So I think we do need to have a more holistic view in terms of dealing with pensioner poverty um, in a way that addresses you know, the climate crisis, for instance, or the housing crisis. So retrofitting homes or building more social housing. Uh, I, I just think this, this hammer they have with the triple lock, I just don't think it's clever policy. But of course, like you say, it's clever politics, the Tories, because it gets them a lot of uh, votes among older people. Uh, somebody said, I'm retiring in five years. We have to keep it. You know, I, I'm retiring in, in, in 28 years. We have to keep it that, that long as well. I can see the argument. Mainstream media in Britain isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't about relaying facts or providing useful context. More often than not, it exists to serve the rich and the powerful. But we say, fuck that. You funders, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. Next story. Graham Smith, the leader of the anti-monarchy campaign group Republic, is suing the Metropolitan Police Chief Mark Rowley. Why? Because of these events back in May. This footage is from King Charles's coronation. Sitting on the ground is Smith, who was arrested by the Met along with five other anti-monarchy protesters. That was despite previous discussions with police and assurances from the Met that their demonstration could go ahead. Smith was detained for 14 hours after that arrest, although no further action was taken. At the time, Smith described the arrest to Radio 4's Today programme like this. We were simply unloading uh, placards from our van. Um, we were immediately descended upon by a large number of uh, police officers from the, uh, I believe they're called the TSG, um, a particular group of officers, and they immediately stopped us from unloading, detained us, searched us and the van. Um, they told us that they were going to arrest us on uh, suspicion of carry being equipped to lock on, which was untrue. There was nothing that we had in our possession uh, that could have allowed us to lock on. Um, they then took us and held us for 16 hours. Um, and there was absolutely, they also said they had intelligence, which is untrue. If they did have intelligence, their intelligence officers are either lying or incompetent because there was never any uh, discussion, thought, email, message, anything that suggested any intent to do anything disruptive. And we have had four months of uh, close conversation with the Metropolitan Police in which we have explained to them exactly what we're going to do, where we're going to be. We told them that we, we how many placards we had, what they would say, that we would have flags, that we would have amplification equipment. The amplification equipment was then uh, seized and we were told that we would be arrested. Uh, my colleagues were told they'd be arrested if they used megaphones. The whole thing was a deliberate attempt to disrupt and uh, diminish our protest. The police action against Republic and other protesters followed the government's granting police forces new powers to disrupt protests before they'd even begun. Think Minority Report and pre-crime with Tom Cruise. Uh, the Public Order Act came into effect just days before the coronation. It created new offences of locking on and going equipped to lock on. As well as damages and an apology from the Met Commissioner, Smith is also seeking a judicial review of his arrest. Speaking to The Guardian, uh, Smith said this. The important thing is that we need answers as to whether law stands on the right to protest and there is a matter of natural justice for those of us involved. I, for one, would certainly like to hear a full-throated apology from the Metropolitan Police. A spokesperson for Scotland Yard said this in response. We can confirm that a judicial claim has been issued. It would be inappropriate to comment on ongoing proceedings. Incredible story in The Guardian. I really suggest that people should read the whole thing because you see in detail how meticulously planned this protest was in liaison with the police at the very highest levels, a bronze commander. You know, it's almost like how to coordinate a protest with the police. You know, some might even say that's not really a protest. <laughs> Down to the wording of their placard. This was agreed with the police. And even then, Graham Smith was arrested. What do you make of all this? It's, it's wild. Um, and, you know, I've made this point many, many times, but it just shows how utterly without foundation um, all of the uh, free speech warriors, how utterly without foundation their arguments have been over the last several years. You know, we've seen this widespread moral panic over the idea that you can't say anything anymore and that universities aren't um, safe spaces, or sorry, that, you know, universities are creating these safe spaces where which are chilling free speech. Um, and, you know, when uh, like a comedian is cancelled or like someone receives some backlash on Twitter, 
there's all this like, oh, you can't say anything anymore. And yet when there is actually people being arrested by the police on the street for protesting, you don't hear anything. It's completely and utterly pathetic. And, you know, the reason that we have like rules around free speech or legislation around free speech and, and rights that should be guaranteed for freedom of speech and expression is not actually so that, you know, everyone has the right to say whatever they want all the time in whatever public forum they want to, to use. Because, you know, there are like codes of conduct that exist within private spaces that, you know, people agree to abide by, whatever. That's like a completely separate point. The reason that we have legislation around free speech is to protect against the despotism, the potential despotism of the state. That's like literally the cornerstone of political liberalism. It's why rights exist and why they are supposed to be separate from and outside of the wider legislative process. It's supposed to be like, these are the foundations of democracy. No government can touch them so that we don't get a kind of despotic totalitarian ruler who comes in and tries to rip these rules to shreds and, you know, um, yeah, like abuse their power, basically. So the fact that we actually have this now being undertaken by the state and alleged liberals are saying nothing is it's true. It's through the looking glass. It's kind of pathetic, to be honest. Yeah, it really is extraordinary. When, when people say how much they care about free speech, it's often it directly correlates to them not caring or doing anything about the stuff that really matters. You know, people who who, who have literally set up organisations around free speech in this country. I say, great. I think free speech is hugely important too. Don't you agree that we need it enshrined in a constitutional document like the US, which everybody can widely understand? You can get in a bookstore. It's a thin document. It tells you your basic rights and front and centre is freedom of expression, freedom of political conscience. They go, no, 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 no. It's almost as if they use it as a way of attacking their political opponents, but don't really care. Next story. When we broke the Labour League story here at Navarra in 2020, it was a landmark moment. It revealed a shocking level of hostility inside Labour HQ to Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and also demonstrated several failures in dealing with anti-Semitism complaints before Jenny Formby became General Secretary in 2018. There were two big court cases surrounding the leaking of that report, but one of those cases has now been spectacularly dropped. Nine people who were suing the party for failing to protect their data have now dropped their invasion of privacy lawsuit over the leak. The nine people were all named in that leaked report as having made anti-Semitism complaints against the party, and it's not clear if they've dropped their case after reaching a settlement with the party or if something else has happened. Anyway, in April, seven of the nine complainants were named by the High Court after they failed to win an order granting them anonymity. All but one of the named complainants were involved with the group Labour Against Anti-Semitism, LAS. That was an organisation responsible for a huge, huge number of anti-Semitism complaints against Labour during the Corbyn years. They include its former chair, Ewan Phillips, as well as members Emma Picken and Denny Taylor. I should say that neither Mr Phillips nor Ms Picken are Jewish. Also named were Mina Kupferman, Colin Appleby and Julie Cattle, who were publicly affiliated with the group. Another named was Andrew Burridge, who had no public connection to the group. At the time, a researcher with knowledge of the case told Navarra Media this. It's very strange that people who have publicly stated they have submitted complaints or that they were reporting on labour against anti-Semitism submitting complaints would be upset about this becoming known via the leaked report. In a connected ongoing case, labour is suing five former staffers after accusing them of leaking the report. That's despite the fact that the Information Commissioner's Office found insufficient evidence of their involvement to prosecute. The Guardian reports this. The Guardian understands that development does not include, does not affect rather, the party's claim against the former staffers who include Corbyn's former chief of staff, Kerry Murphy, and his former director of communications, Seamus Milne, although they are hoping the development will prompt Labour to reconsider. The other staffers being sued by Labour are Georgie Robertson, Laura Murray, and Harry Hayball. We should say all deny any involvement in the leak. One source close to the case told Navarra Media that it being dropped made the second case also being dropped as more likely. But whether it is or not will depend on, in their words, if the party can see sense on the issue and think rationally rather than factionally. These legal wrangles have proved hugely costly for the Labour Party. Estimates put the bill for the case against the five staffers at around half a million pounds so far. Last month, it was ordered to pay £90,000 towards Carrie Murphy's costs, and it paid nearly £100,000 towards the legal costs of the staffers. 
but it was also ordered to pay over £100,000 towards the cost of these seven complainants whose anonymity case failed. If both cases had continued, estimates put the final bill to the Labour Party at up to £4 million. In response to the withdrawal of the privacy case, a Labour spokesperson said this, We are grateful to have had the opportunity to have met members of Labour Against Antisemitism to discuss their concerns and to thank them for all their work in challenging antisemitism. We are pleased to be able to move forward in a positive manner. The Labour Party is committed to continue its work on combating antisemitism. They're so committed they are far more likely to suspend and expel members if they're Jewish. Uh, Grace, it looks like Labour have settled this particular dispute. Do you think it just kicked in that, look, we're, we're ahead in the polls, uh, we don't want a plethora of court cases around the time of the next general election, we'd rather lose some money now rather than lose some money later, or even worse, lose a case and look deeply unserious? I think it was clear that um, a lot of this, if not all of it, was factionally motivated, particularly those cases against the five staffers. Um, and now Keir Starmer realises that he doesn't particularly stand to benefit um, from continuing these cases, particularly given how costly they are. And also given that as long as there's you know media attention around it, it will be um, directed towards the Labour Party in general and to him in general, rather than um, you know against Corbyn, who actually now people see isn't even part of the Labour Party. So it's, you know, not going to benefit him. Actually, he's already controlling like every lever of power that he could possibly want to have within the party. He's expelling everyone left, right and centre who doesn't like completely and utterly follow down to the line everything that he, um, he you know, says that, that they should be saying. He is becoming basically, he's basically become a kind of despot, a like completely totalitarian figure within the party. So he probably thinks, oh, well, there's not much point continuing with this now, um, given that I've basically gotten everything that I want. The despotism point is so fascinating, Grace, because I'm sure as some people watching this, listening later on, are already aware. Navarro has a downstream out with, um, with uh, Rory Stewart next Sunday. Tory Rory, or maybe not. Um, he said some very interesting things in that interview, and you can catch all those at 6 p.m. on Sunday. But what we trailed with was his comments about, um, were his comments rather, about Mr. Corbyn and his losing the whip from Keir Starmer, how Keir Starmer is really a, a megalomaniac control freak. Uh, I think his words were micromanagement um, across the party by three, four, five people at Westminster. I broadly agree with that. And, and I think you're right. I think they've got such control over the party now. I think they've expelled so many people. Um, I think they have their way to such an unprecedented ex extent, really, even more than Blair, they probably realised that this is a, a factional tool to destroy their enemies. Wasn't quite working, but also it's better to cut your losses because so much in other places with regards to that strategy is and has really, 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 really revealing, I think, that people who claim to be good with money, we're going to be so good for the taxpayer, we're going to spend your money so well, we're willing to throw millions of pounds at potentially losing a case because of the triviality of factional rivalries in the Labour Party. I think that says something. You know, I've raised before the fact that Rachel Reeves, so keen to emphasise how prudent she is, failed to pay back her credit card debts a few years ago as a Labour MP. I think that stuff speaks of volumes. You should always watch what politicians do rather than what they say. Final story. Paul Marshall is a multi-millionaire hedge fund manager, but he has an interesting side hustle in media. He's the owner of Unheard Media and the main investor in GB News, having given the broadcaster £10 million in 2021. He even served as chair of the channel for a few months after Andrew Neil dramatically resigned. Remember that? But now he seems to be looking to add some new titles to his portfolio. That's after he hired investment bank Moelis to advise him on plotting a bid for the Daily Telegraph and Sunday Telegraph. The two papers are up for sale, along with The Spectator magazine, following their seizure by Lloyds Banking Group. The bank swooped in after current owners, the Barclay family, were judged unable to service their massive debts. According to Sky, it's not clear whether Marshall is planning an offer for The Spectator too, but back in June, The Times reported this. GB News tycoon Sir Paul Marshall eyes up £50 million Spectator deal. The Telegraph titles are, of course, hugely popular with middle-class Tory voters, and whoever owns them will wield enormous influence as we enter the next election and thereafter. Marshall would probably enjoy nothing more than that, given he is a free market evangelist who founded the right-wing Legatum Institute. 
But if he goes through with his Telegraph bid, he will face some stiff competition from other members of the British billionaire class. Looking for a piece of the action, the younger Barclays have been negotiating with golf-based backers to take back control of the titles in a move which feels like something from succession. And meanwhile, Lord Rothermere of the Daily Mail Group has also been talking to the Gatteries about making a bit of his own. Elsewhere, it's been mooted that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's National Investment Fund wants to add the Telegraph to its growing stable of assets like Newcastle Football Club. Grace, this is a pretty big story because if you own GB News, Unheard and The Telegraph, you, you've basically cornered the market on multiple brands of conservatism. And more importantly, if the Tories lose the next election, you can crown any party leader in opposition, can't you? Well, I think you'd have a lot of power, but there are still all the Murdoch outlets that also retain a huge amount of sway. Um, and, you know, not to mention, like, smaller outlets that um, conservatives continue to rely on, particularly online ones. It would be significant, um, but I don't think it would give them the power to kind of crown a conservative uh, party leader. Um, having said that, a lot depends on what ends up happening with the future of GB News. Um, I haven't actually been following it recently, but the last time I looked, it didn't seem particularly financially um, sustainable. Whereas I think The Telegraph is doing okay, and I know The Spectator is definitely in the black. Um, so obviously the reason that these were sold was not because they weren't profitable, it was because of the, the debts of, um, of the former owners. So it would be a big deal. It would just, you know, continue along the trend that we've seen in the UK media landscape for a very long time of a move towards greater and greater consolidation in the hands of a, a few billionaires, which is nothing that I think would surprise anyone watching this. And I think would just, um, you know, reinforce the calls that we've been making over the course of the show to make sure that people support new media like Navara and also Tribune that I write for. <laughs> Look, I mean, I should rephrase that really. I think people aren't ready for what happens if the Tories lose the general election and what happens to them in the immediate aftermath. We have not had the Tories in opposition for, what, 15 years? Uh, well, 2010. I mean, there was a bit of a, They were basically on cruise control for about a year before the general election. Uh, they've not had a, a, a leadership election in opposition, I believe, since 2005. I could be wrong. That was David Cameron. So 18 years. That was before social media, really. So I, I feel like between social media and GB News and Talk TV... I think there is going to be a bloodbath on a scale which we've not seen. That has never happened before. A Tory party leadership election in opposition under these conditions, I think, will look very different to what people have probably come to expect. And on that point, Grace, of media ownership, very true. And of course, it's why you should support new media. I'd also say, look, we've got a new uh, cap here at Navarra Media. You can maybe see the logo there, black on black. Uh, we call it the Kendall, Kendall Roy. A very handsome cap. So if you support us already, you can go to shop.navaramedia.com. And if you don't support us, you can, of course, buy the merch, but go to navaramedia.com forward slash support as well. Help us build that new media for different politics. I think it's only going to get more important, by the way, if Labour form the next government. This idea that job done, I wish, I wish it was that easy because the establishment absolutely goes right through the middle of both our main parties in this country. Uh, Grace Blakely, you've been wonderful this evening. Thanks for joining me tonight. As have you. Thank you for having me. And thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. The show will be back tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.